Welcome to Power Surge with Alex Epstein and Eric Dennis. Today we're going to be talking about the subject that's on everyone's mind, gasoline prices. Eric, welcome. How's it going? Great. Thanks. So uh, actually, usually we speak from across the country uh, because I'm in Southern California and Eric is in New York, but I am visiting the CIPHQ in New York, so we're sitting approximately three feet apart, uh, which is good distance to talk about this stuff. So let's get started. Um, the issue with gasoline prices, I think, is that there's just lots and lots of confusion. Um, some understandable, some I think caused by various interests in the media and politics who have an interest in distorting things. But in any case, I think there's a real question of when you're going to the pump, when you see prices go up, when you see prices fluctuate with gasoline more than they do with other goods and services, there's a real question of what's causing this, what's behind this, how do these things work? Um, and I find that most of the discussion in our culture, even the, the better things that talk about supply and demand, um, don't get at it super clearly. So today what we're gonna try to do is break down the issue um, in as clear a way we can, and hopefully next time you go to the gas pump, next time you think about these, you'll be uh, way, way clearer on how this works, and actually even, I think, have an appreciation of sorts when the price uh, of gasoline goes up. So for how that'll, how that'll happen, uh, stay tuned. So Eric, when people go to uh, look at the gas price, when they're wondering about it, wh what do you think they, where do you think we should start in terms of making sense of the prices that we see? Uh, right, so the first thing to keep in mind about what, what actually is the nature of a price. Uh, so fundamentally, a price is a signal. Um, it's, it's telling you something about the real world out there, and particularly what it's telling you is the actual state, both of the scarcity of the commodity of which you have the price, uh, and of our kind of preferences for that commodity, how urgent uh, we need that commodity. And wait, so, wait, wait, wait a second. So, I mean, I, I know that on a certain level, but I mean, if you look at just the price, it's just what something costs, right? Is, is it, how is that a signal? It just seems like, just, it's just, just a price, right? Right. So the question is, how is that price set? Why is, that, why is it at the level it is? Mm -hmm. And so the interactions between all of the people, all the economic agents involved in the generation of that commodity and its marketing and all the users, there's some process that leads to that price being at the level it's at. And so this is getting into the, the basic idea of supply and demand. Um, and the forces of supply and demand, meaning basically um, as the price changes around hypothetically, uh, how much more would the suppliers produce of it if the price goes up versus how much less they would produce of, uh, of it if it goes down? Uh, and also, how much more of it would we demand as consumers if the price goes down versus how much less of it would we demand if the price goes up? Those things are the facts, uh, kind of those hypothetical facts even, that come into play when the actual price is determined. Okay, so let's can, let, let's apply that to the specifics of gasoline. So who are these economic, who are the economic agents on both sides, and what what sorts of considerations are determining how much they're able to sell at a given price, how much they're willing to buy at a given price? Right. So on, on one side you have the producers, both of crude oil and the guys who actually refine it uh, into gasoline and other fuels. Um, so those guys, it's a technological issue. One with uh, suppose, for instance, that you want to produce more crude oil. How do you do it? You have to mine more oil. 
Um, you have to devote more physical resources, more mining platforms, more, uh, more tankers, um, more uh, kind of drilling equipment. You have to devote, you have to procure those resources and, as well as physical, you know, uh, labor, as well as people involved in doing all this. You have to organize it, you have to procure those resources, you have to go out there and actually do it. And the question is, how hard is that? How hard is it to produce one extra um, barrel of oil? Um, so those kind of technological uh, questions, as well as questions of the labor force, of you know, do you actually have all the engineers you need to have? How, how much would it cost to hire one extra engineer to figure out how to build one extra rig? Um, on the supply side, those are the forces which determine how much more oil will you produce if the price goes up by so much? So, and just to add on the, the technological side of it, I mean, there's a huge question of what, so we think of oil as this um, very uniform thing, like, oh, there's just oil in the ground. But really, there are many different types of oils in terms of their chemical composition, and the, the source that they're coming from is very, very different. So what you have in Saudi Arabia, you can probably get out of the ground for two or three bucks, uh, a barrel, you know, which means barrel is 42 gallons. It's extremely, extremely cheap on a per gallon level. But as you go to places where you need to drill more deeply or places where the, the rock that the oil is coming from is not as porous and the oil doesn't flow as easily, uh, that takes more resources to do. And today we're, we're having a lot of really cool innovations in things like shale, which is a very dense uh, sort of rock or tar sands, which is a very dense material, and that requires more energy, more technology, uh, more expertise. And so, at a, you know, at any given price, it, you know, if oil goes back down to twenty dollars a barrel, that supply is going to go away in the sense of it's not going to be profitable to make oil from tar sands at, at twenty dollars uh, a barrel. Right, and all of this stuff, as well as a, a billion other facts, factor into what we call the supply of oil. And again, what that means essentially is just at a given price, how much are the producers of oil and ultimately of gas, uh, how much are they willing to produce at that price? And at lower prices, they're willing to produce less, and at higher prices, they're willing to produce more. Um, and then the flip side of that is, of course, the demand. Uh, which but I just want to say one more thing about just what kind of thing uh, supply is. So it's, it's important that it's not, Eric was mentioning, it's not just one discrete thing, like there's like a bunch, because you can think of it as a bunch of supply. I think of it more as the willingness to supply or the ability to supply at different prices. So in economics class, you'll see it as a graph. You'll see it as a curve on a graph, or the way you'll learn in certain contexts, which I find very helpful, is what's called a schedule, which is, you know, at this price, so at $2, how much gasoline are you willing to buy? I mean, this is on the buyer side, but, or, or let's put it on the seller side. So at, at um, $100 a barrel, how much oil are you willing to sell? At $200 a barrel, how much oil are you willing to sell? At $5 a barrel, how much oil are you willing to sell? And those numbers uh, vary dramatically. And of course, the higher the price, the more you're willing uh, to supply. But it's, it's helpful to think of it as, as this graph or this, this schedule. Definitely. And it's not only how much are you willing to sell, but implicitly in that is how much are you willing to produce in the first place. Uh, so connect, I mean, you mean so just looking in, in a longer range way? Yeah, just in the sense that it's not like there's a fixed quantity of oil and you're going to have it one way or the other and you have to decide of it how much you want to sell now or in the future. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a more fundamental and I think a, actually a better way uh, of thinking about it because it's not just that there, it's very easy to think here in the rhetoric and the culture, particularly what I've seen from 
uh, Bill O'Reilly recently, that there's just this sort of guaranteed flow of X amount of oil. And the only thing the oil companies are deciding somehow is how much are they going to rip you off uh, for that, that amount of oil. Um, but it's really, you know, how much, how much oil can they produce profitably? And given all the fa factors Eric was discussing, some of the ones I was discussing, it's hard as hell to produce oil. So it's hard to, it's hard to produce it uh, profitably. And then with certain types of things, there's just simply not the technology and the ability to produce it profit, pro uh, profitably, and thus certainly not uh, the willingness to sell a bunch of oil at a loss. Yeah, definitely. So um, as we were talking about, all of that stuff kind of factors into this concept that we'll call the supply. Um, and then there's the flip side, which is uh, the demand. And a kind of a parallel thing happens there, which is uh, how much oil are we as consumers uh, going to want to consume if it's $5 a gallon versus if it's $350 versus if it's $250? Um, so the, the things that go into that are things we're more familiar with kind of on a day-to-day -day basis. If, if oil goes way up, we may not take that kind of long family trip in the car to visit some aunt that we don't really care about. Um, if it's really cheap, we may take that trip. We may actually not only take a car trip, but we may take a, a trip in a plane because uh, fuel prices for planes have gone down and we can just jump on a plane to like the Caribbean for $100 less than we otherwise could have. So all of these decisions about how we ourselves as kind of individual consumers and how businesses, uh, you know, how are they gonna ship their goods from point A to point B? Um, which determines the availability of goods in stores and, and all kinds of other coordinating activities that require actual physical transportation. Um, all of that stuff, the higher the price of gas goes, the more we're going to economize on gas and economize on transportation. Um, and all of those facts, when they kind of come together in aggregate, they determine in total at any given price uh, how much uh, gas do we want to consume, and that's demand. Yeah, I just emphasize that these are these are real needs. I mean, they're they're objective needs and objective wants in terms of what you know what the airline wants at a given price. I mean, how much you know what its its need for um, say kerosene, which is, is you know primary form of jet fuel, is how much it's willing to pay. That's uh, that's a fact. How much you you know how much gasoline you want at a given price. Uh, that's a fact. And, and as to just expand the idea, it's not just transportation fuel. Oil is used for lubrication. Um, oil is used for all kinds of plastics and other petroleum products. And all of these are important uses which are, are valuable to the people using them. Um, and it's crucial that, th that for everything to work, they have the information to know, okay, how much of this can I really afford? So that they can then put it to the most uh, value use. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So now this is the basic function of, of prices in uh, a free market system, uh, which is that this interplay between the supply and the demand um, will determine this one equilibrium market price, which really tells uh, uh, suppliers, it tells them what is the relative urgency of supplying uh, that commodity right now. And it tells those of us who are consuming it, um, you know, what's the relative scarcity of this commodity? So just be clear, relative to what? Uh, well, um, relative to other goods, uh, you know, relative to, um, you know, other, other kind of points in time at which the commodity may have been uh, less or more scarce. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking um, relative to other goods because you constantly have the issue uh, with prices, and we'll get into this more a little bit later, but just of, uh, uh, of substitution. So, you know, if, if your price of apples goes way, way up, you start substituting oranges. Oranges might not be your exact favorite, but if apples are $5, $10 a pound, you'll start um, substituting other things. And with oil, it's, it becomes interesting because oil, turns out, is much, much harder to substitute uh, than other things. Right, and, and that's an essential piece of information. And uh, just uh, to kind of reiterate about the signaling nature of prices, um, the importance of that signal is that the, the single, say, the airline, which, um, which needs to determine uh, how much uh, you know, jet fuel to use, um, in principle, if somehow there were some central planner planning the whole economy um, and he were operating this airline and part of his function, he would need to know the total state of everyone's use of jet fuel and all the other possible uses for the, the crude oil that could go to uh, produce other other kinds of fuels, and he would need to somehow assimilate all of this, this information, which is really dispersed across the whole economy in, in millions and really billions of different minds. Um, but you don't, in a market system, the beauty of a market system is that all of that information in, in the way that it needs to be held is condensed into one uh, essential number uh, that is comprehensible to the uh, you know the the air uh, the airplane company uh, to the airline uh, or to the consumer and that number is the price so that all that information uh, through this competitive process through the process of su supply and demand being equilibrated that information is condensed into the price and I don't need to actually know all of the particular facts about you know the relative scarcities of different kind of oil products and the scarcities of refining facilities and all these things that um, factor into the price. Uh, and the only thing I need to know is that one price. And knowing that price as an airline tells me how much fuel uh, I, can, I can reasonably contemplate using and as, as a consumer say how much gas I want to buy. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the idea of scarcity because I think that's one thing to really think about uh, when you're at the pump. I mean, the on the supply side, as I mentioned, it's it's difficult to produce oil. It takes resources, um, and you know it takes resource you know many types of resources such as land and labor and steel and other kinds of equipment that could be used uh, for other things. So at, at any given time, there's only a certain ability to produce uh, a certain amount of oil. And what we have to realize as consumers, is that there are other people, it's not just that we want gasoline and that's the end of the story. It's there are a lot of other people with rights of their own who want the incredible value either from gasoline or from the oil products in general. And so one thing that's happening, if we see the price go up, one thing to think is, well, maybe other people um, have become able now to buy oil and, and use it to benefit their lives who haven't been. So if you take, say, people in China who are now able to drive a car who never could have that pleasure before. Well, you can't say it's a bad thing that prices go up because those people um, are exercising their right to drive a car because that's, you know, that's making their lives better. You could, you could also factor it into other ways in which those Chinese people are making our lives better through all sorts of, of other trades. But there's this mistaken idea that a price going up as such is bad and someone should be punished rather than realizing that there are many, many just positive 
factors about people promoting their lives and people being interested in a certain product that lead a price to go up. Absolutely. And even in cases where you could say there's something bad that's happened, say there was some natural disaster which uh, you know, spilled a bunch, a bunch of oil and so oil supply goes down and, and gas prices go up, even in the sense that that's bad, the thing that's bad is not that the price went up. The thing that's bad is there's there's uh, a higher level of scarcity of that commodity, which is a physical fact out there that's unalterable. And given that physical fact, the absolute worst thing to do is to have the price not be reflective of that fact, because it's only through reflecting the actual facts, the real scarcities, the real preferences that people have, that the, the whole market functions. And so what we don't want to do ever is artificially distort prices away from the, uh, the actual facts that they, they're supposed to reflect. So yeah, let's just be concrete in terms of, of, of how the market uh, functions. So I've, I've heard uh, Bill O'Reilly, I've mentioned him before, I'll mention him again, recently say something, I forget the exact number, but something like, oh, the oil company should just lower their prices down a dollar. And that, that, seems, that seems great, right? Because, because then we'll just buy gasoline uh, at, a, at a dollar lower. But remember, there's only a certain amount of ability to produce gasoline uh, at certain prices. So what happens if the price goes down a dollar? Well, you probably, at least most of us, and certainly on net, people in the economy are buying less oil at, and less gasoline at the current price than they would be if it were a dollar cheaper. So if it's a dollar cheaper, that mean everyone, er, means everyone is going to buy more. But there's not more. Um, there won't be more available. In fact, there will be less available because if, you know, if the price is lower then they have a less lesser ability to supply things at that given price and what that leads to is what happened in the 1970s which is a shortage and and that completely dislocates things because instead of having a price go up which is a really good thing because it keeps everything coordinated it keeps everyone acting in conjunction with the facts of uh, of supply and demand including scarcity it it sends this false signal to everyone, oh, everything's fine, buy away, and then you run out of stuff. And then you have things like waiting lines, and in the 70s, power plants couldn't get power, and we're in New York City right now. I mean, this whole city is made possible by shipments powered by petroleum-powered vehicles every single day. And you can really, really, uh, really have chaos. And it's all because people don't understand that the price going up is, as Eric said, it's it's a very good thing. We cannot like the facts that made the price go up, but the freedom of the price to go up is essential. Anything anything you want to add on that, or should we move on to the next aspect of this? Let's go ahead. Um, all right. Well, let's let's bring in then uh, some other elements of this with with this as groundwork. So one element is the issue of oil companies and it being viewed as somehow oil companies are you know jerking us around oil companies are you know, they're they're making profits off these higher prices and let's be clear they are certainly making more profits if you if you can produce a product at x price um, and then the price goes up you know from let's say x plus 5 to x plus 10 then of course you're going to make uh, more money but the question is that, but so that's true. But there are lots of questions such as, is that bad and what causes it? So first let's talk about what, what control do the oil companies have over these rises in prices? Because people jump from, they're making a lot more profit to they somehow artificially and arbitrarily and unfairly raised the price. 
Right. Well, I mean, the price still, I mean, the uh, any individual oil company, it's not a monopolistic market in any sense. They're, they don't have some kind of control over that price. That I mean, not, not among private oil companies in the U.S., which have a tiny percentage of the market. With OPEC, there's some argument. Uh, yeah. So, so uh, not not the people who are. Be- I mean, Congress is not primarily yelling at OPEC. They're yelling at you know Exxon Mobil and others who are tiny, tiny players on the world market. Right. There's no doubt that uh, that OPEC countries, because of their, this you know government controlled cartel or multi government controlled cartel, are you know a uh, a destabilizing kind of distortionary influence on the oil market. But kind of taking that as a given, as a as a physical fact, as far as other oil producers are concerned, because they have no control over it, obviously, none of those other oil producers are actually controlling the kind of the equilibrium price of oil and therefore of gas. Uh, yeah, and so there's an issue of now. Now, I think Adam Smith has had something to this effect. If you think, if you run a, a business, I mean, so for instance, at CIP, um, I sell lectures. And I would love to have the same lecture rate as Bill Clinton, which I think is around 300 grand. And yet I can't arbitrarily, there are some people who want my lectures, but they certainly, not that I know, if you do, give me a call, they certainly don't want them at 300 grand. And this is a, why, because people have a demand schedule where something is only worth, a, you know, they're only willing to buy a certain amount uh, at a certain price. And so, of course, the oil companies, in a sense, want prices to go up, but they have no ability to arbitrarily make them go up. The only thing they have to, they, they can do is say, at the current price, if I produce another unit more of this, can I make a profit? And that's what leads to the whole phenomenon of competition and, and, and in general, driving prices down, because people will compete, people will keep adding as many barrels as they can to the market uh, at a profit, and... So that, you know, that's, that's what is going on. So then there's a question of, well, is it good or bad that they're making, so they're making a really high profit now. So what, Eric, what does it mean that they're making, what, what does that indicate that they're making a really high profit now? What it indicates is that the thing they're providing is even more essential than it was before when their profit wasn't so high. It's, it's indicating that what we want as kind of a society is for more resources to be put to produce this thing, in this case, oil. And that's exactly the beneficial role of the price system, and in this case, the beneficial role of increased profits. Um, the, the greater profit you have on something, the greater incentive there is for all those producers to uh, put more productive capacity into producing that stuff. And that means the greater the, the present profit, the, uh, the greater the future supply of that stuff is going to be when you can actually, when the plans you're making now can actually come to fruition and you can produce more oil in the future. And, and it's definitely a long-range process that this has to go over because you know, even, even uh, aside from all of the supply restrictions, all the regulations and the, the legal problems you have nowadays in the United States to get these you know, productive operations up and going, it's still the case that it's a, it's a very difficult thing to find a new place to dig a huge hole and to extract you know, uh, gallons and gallons and gallons and, and you know, millions of barrels of this great substance from the earth. So there's, it's physically a very difficult problem. The greater profits that oil companies have today based on an increased price for oil are precisely the thing we need to signal to these producers and to anyone else who wants to enter the field or enter enter kind of related fields to produce 
other portable kinds of fuels or, or uh, even more radical alternatives in terms of alternative transportation systems or alternative forms of energy. Um, the, the high profit that these guys are making is a huge signal to all producers. You need to pay attention to this. You need to throw more resources here so that we can have more supply than we otherwise would in the future. So a higher profit right now is really a, a harbinger of uh, higher supplies in the future and therefore lower prices in the future than we would otherwise have. So higher profit today means lower uh, price tomorrow than we would have otherwise had without that higher profit today. Yeah, it's funny uh, because when people talk about this issue, it's almost as if, well, we wish the, the profit of the oil companies at this current price, so let's say it's $4 a gallon where you are, we wish they were just making uh, you know, five cents, the equivalent of five cents a gallon. Incidentally, by the way, people think, don't realize gas stations have tiny, tiny profit margins. Usually they make more money on selling, you know, the food in the little Quickie Mart type thing than they do making on the gasoline. And then the higher the price of gasoline goes, the worse off they are because the more price sensitive customers are and the more they have to cut their profit margins. The real profits are coming from, and, and justifiably so, with the the people who are producing the oil, um, which if that that's the main thing that's driving up the gasoline prices, that going up in price. But it's almost it's almost thought as if well at four dollars again we'd rather have them make uh, you know five cents than two dollars. And as Eric indicated, we absolutely should wish they make as much profit as possible because the more profit they're making there. The more they have to invest, the more incentive other people have to create oil, the more incentive other people have to create substitutes. If they could just make five cents, that would be a lot, a lot more ominous um, because one, one aspect of, of the reason that um, gasoline prices will go up more quickly than others is because gasoline and more broadly oil is so far superior to the current alternatives that we're willing to pay a lot more for it um, than we are now. So when, you know, it used to be maybe $2 a gallon, why are we willing to pay $4 a gallon? Why are we willing to buy almost as much at $4 a gallon? I mean, Eric can uh, elaborate on what's called price elasticity, but basically it's so valuable that instead of with the apples that we go to oranges, there's nothing remotely like an orange. So it has to go up to $7, $9 to really make something like an electric car uh, valuable. And so the more profit there is in that, the more quickly they'll innovate. And then just to add one, one more point about how competition works and how profit works. People might think, well, because they're making such high profits, aren't they just satis uh, satisfied with the status quo? Aren't they just going to produce the same low amount of oil uh, and do nothing? And as I indicated before, no in the oil sense, because if there's any more oil to be produced profitably, they know it's either they're going to do it or, or they're just going to be left behind by other people and better to produce more oil at a lower price than no oil at a lower price. But what they're also doing today, which I never hear talked about, is the oil companies are overwhelmingly the ones who are contributing to the likely number one competitor to oil, which is natural gas. And because natural, because it's the oil and gas industry, they have very similar technologies, very similar um, geological locations. And because of the, the, shale, uh, the shale gas and shale oil revolution, they're producing such an overwhelming amount of gas that our gas, our gas power, uh, power gas-fired power plants, excuse me, are now cheaper than China's coal-powered uh, coal uh, 
coal, geez, coal-fired power plants. I'm having a little bit of trouble with pronunciation today. And that is that, what that means is that you have a greater chance for natural gas-powered vehicles using compressed natural gas, a greater potential for what's called gas-to-liquids, in which you can create the equivalent of oil-diesel fuel using gas, um, liquefied natural gas, which is super, super compressed um, and ultimately liquid, very cold natural gas. The oil company is producing its own competition. And again, this is testament to how prices work and how the, the free market works. Uh, absolutely. And uh, there's kind of a moral point here, which is what we're relying on when we say that oil companies are always going to saturate, they're, they're always going to produce as much as they possibly can to get a profit, is we're relying on their greed. And their, their greed is what makes us able to always consume the maximum amount of oil that's, that's within our kind of cognitive abilities to extract from the earth. Yeah, and, and I mean, that, that just goes to the, the virtue of self-interest in general and just the misunderstanding that the interests of people are aligned, whereas in fact the interests of us and the oil companies are incredibly aligned, and unless, unless or to the extent that they're somehow taking advantage of government favors, the attitude when we see oil prices today, gasoline prices today, should be gratitude. Because the reason we're choosing to pay those prices is because no one else can come close to matching those prices for portable fuel. And that means they're the best. They're the iPhone of portable energy. If you, you know, if iPhone is your favorite, insert Android if you like Android. But that is, it's, I find it bizarre that people are praising every other form of quote alternative energy that has demonstrated no ability whatsoever to match oil. And yet they criticize the oil producers. But the oil producers are the best. The other guys, I mean, they, they can get praise for trying, but it's certainly, it's certainly not like, I mean, when you, hear, when you hear Obama talk about, yeah, we can't rely on oil, we need to go think, to things like wind. Wind, um, someone pointed out today, if, you know, is less than half a percentage of world energy production, even after all of these massive substitutes and mandates, uh, whereas oil is, I think, around 40%, and yet it's still providing cheap, portable fuel for everyone. So just the moral evaluation we make of these companies for being self-interested is, is exactly inverted. We should admire their pursuit of self-interest and then the value it gives us. And what we definitely shouldn't do is simply take this, uh, this enormously productive, extremely cheap, uh, convenient energy source for granted. We, we get into these kind of ruts where we, we simply assume it's somehow our birthright to acquire oil at a given price. And it's so regular, our consumption of, of this enormously productive good, that just becomes uh, commonplace and we take, take it for granted. The real lesson here is that we should, from time to time when we experience a price shock, what that should tell us is it's not something that actually comes automatically. There's a huge productive enterprise associated with tightening every screw and calculating every angle in order to get the most of this very beneficial commodity to us every day. And insofar as we're talking about doing something, it's definitely not the government needs to do anything to encourage competition in the oil industry. I mean, what financier or executive wouldn't want to be able to outcompete the oil industry given the current profits and how valuable that you're dealing with portable fuel, which is right now the, the most valued commodity uh, in the world, but but what they should do is stop doing so much of what they're doing in terms of um, intervening on the restricting production side, and then we should at least have the attitude recognizing that other governments around the world are massively restricting uh, production 
in their own countries. And I think that's a good segue to the issue of the least popular people who buy oil. We mentioned that people buy oil for all sorts of purposes, lubrication, plastics, jet fuel, gasoline, diesel. But there's one group of people who buy oil that for some reason we think uh, we're taught that they have no right to buy oil and they shouldn't be buying oil, and those are speculators. So Eric, since you're the speculator, you want to talk a little bit about, a bit about speculators? Sure. Uh, so the idea here is we're given this, this little story about speculators that they're not really doing anything productive by buying all this oil and even theoretically like, you know, building a storage facility and, and uh, for whatever kind of speculative reason, just plopping it there and, and not using it and uh, causing the price to go up uh, higher than it would have otherwise been. And we're taught that because these people are doing nothing productive with the, uh, the, the commodity and they're just increasing its price to us, that there's some kind of evil in this. But really, they are doing something extremely valuable with it. A speculator in general um, is anticipating uh, a future price increase in the commodity. Now, there could be many, many reasons for that future price increase. It, it, it's because maybe he exp expects... Wait, wait, is, he, is he anticipating a future increase, or is he just anticipating I mean, he can sell short, right? Yeah, so I'm talking about the case where he actually goes long the commodity. In, in the case where he expects uh, a decrease in the price, then he can go short the commodity. Um, and he makes a profit if the price actually goes down. But just uh, in, in these, in, in the problem that people usually have is um, is oil speculators who think the price is going to go up, go, going long oil, and therefore increasing its present price. If he thinks it's going to go down, which is important, this is the flip side of speculation. It's it's always possible that the speculator will, uh, through his analysis, determine the price is going to go down. In which case, he sells short that oil and he decreases the present price of oil and we never hear anyone celebrating all the, the speculators when this happens, this kind of, um, you know, this benevolent decrease in the price of oil due to speculation. That's, that's never, never a news story. But the, even let's take the story that we're concerned with that pops up in the news. So these evil speculators buy up all this oil because they think the price of oil is going to go up in the future. Um, so uh, two things. Now, uh, Let's examine two different uh, possibilities for why they would be buying that oil and look at what's actually going on and actually objectively evaluate whether this is a real economic benefit that the speculators exist. So let's just divide it into two kind of scenarios. One, the speculator thinks that uh, the supply of oil is going to go down in the future, and there could be all kinds of reasons for that. He could think that just inherently in the earth, there's a limited supply of oil, and it's going to be hard and harder and harder to get more. Or he could realize that governments around the world, and in particular the U.S. government, are making it more and more onerous to actually get oil out of the ground. There's this environmentalist movement that's you know trying to get at the jugular of all the oil producers and really all kind of industrialists. And he could imagine that increasing kind of uh, increasingly uh, onerous regulatory uh, environments uh, lead to supply restrictions in the future. Um, so whatever the case, if he supposes that that future support, supply of oil is going to go down, he and su suppose the demand is relatively the same, or even if it's going up, then he's going to anticipate that future price of, of oil is going to be higher, and he buys oil now. And you know, in the extreme case, he can physically buy oil and and actually uh, put it in a warehouse and let it sit around. So what's going on here? Um, and, and as a result of this, the present price of oil is going to go up. And so that's bad, right? That's terrible because now we have to pay more at the pump. Actually, that's good. It's great in the same sense that if 
there's any kind of natural condition, any say, say um, you know, an oil tanker, a fleet of oil tankers is wiped out on the ocean and we lose a bunch of oil. We, we were talking before in that case how it would be good if the price went up because that's reflecting the underlying reality, which is that we have less oil. Um, similarly, in this case, what's going on is that this guy who's betting his own money and doing his own analysis or betting his own money on the analysis of people he trusts, um, he is betting that there's going to be some uh, future, in this case, supply restriction on oil. That is a fact. It's, it's, it's going to be a real physical fact that there's just going to be less oil around in the future than uh, than. Uh, is otherwise kind of uh, contemplated. In that case, if we know in the future there's going to be less oil, what do we want to do? We want to economize right now on our use of oil. How do we do that? There's only one way to do that in a free market, and there's really only one way to do that amongst human beings at all, and that's to have a free market in the first place. But in a free market, uh, there's one way to economize on the use of oil, and gasoline in particular, and that's for the price of oil and of gas to go up. And so the speculator, by, uh, by quarantining a certain quantity of that oil and saving it for future use effectively, is saying, hey, we have needs for oil, not just right now, but we have very powerful, critical needs for oil in the future. Yes, you could use an extra tank of gas right now to go drive your, your, your dog out to get groomed at some pet salon. That, that is a use of oil you could have right now. But there, say in a week, someone's going to get hit by a car and an ambulance is going to need to come out and pick him up and bring him to a hospital and save his life. That's a future use of oil that's extremely critical. If the price right now is not reflective of what we think are going to be the actual supply conditions of oil in the future, we could be in the situation where we let a guy today go out and groom his dog and travel an extra you know 20 miles in order to get... Uh, get Fido a little uh, uh, a haircut, um, we, we could be doing that while not allowing enough oil in the future to get the ambulance to the guy who just got hit by a car. So, um, the, just, just to be clear, it's not, it's not really about letting, it's just about giving them the information that, that Fido's haircut is, has a real cost associated with it, a greater cost than we thought it would uh, before. Because obviously... If you know pet salon is your highest priority, then and you want to conserve in some other way, go for it. Exactly. So uh, I don't mean when I say let there should be some collective decision making. The point of this is obviously that um, the price system has this automatic mechanism when everybody deals voluntarily with everybody else. It has this automatic mechanism of allowing this information and the best minds thinking the, as hard as they can about what the future supply conditions are going to be. This information through the mechanism of speculation and uh, hoarding up some oil right now and quarantining it and saving it for future use, that's the mechanism in the free market by which that price, the current price of oil, is going to be pushed up and we're going to properly conserve it, economize on it, and not use it for uh, gratuitous activities that are not going to be as valuable now as some future uses of oil are going to be in the future. So did you, you mentioned that that was the, the first use. Did you want to talk about, was the second one going to be a monetary? Well, one? okay, so uh, there, there's, the, there's the state of affairs in which you know uh, oil supply is restricted in the future. Um, there's also the state of affairs in which you could imagine that the, the amount of oil demand actually, you think as a speculator, that it goes down in the future. For instance, if you predict some kind of looming economic recession or depression, then you're going to imagine that oil is going to go down. 
Um, and so you would actually want to sell oil short. Which did happen in 2008. Yeah, there were, there were certainly, um, I mean, there were people who definitely anticipated the recession. Um, and it's quite imaginable that some oil speculators, uh, in fact, a, a lot of oil speculators, when kind of at, at different stages in time, it's not like it was 2005 and the oil speculators were anticipating this, although that's certainly possible. There could have been some. Um, but as economic data kind of started coming out in 2007, 2008, before the real recession, recession really hit at the end of 2008 and beginning of 2009, that the oil speculators looked at this economic information and imagined, hey, if we really run into a recession, there's going to be much less use of gasoline and oil in general. And they sold oil short. And what that does is it frees up more oil to use in the present because it reduces present prices. And that's the flip side of what we talked about. And that's also a good thing. Both, both are good. Um, when the price of oil goes up now because we anticipate future conditions and when the price go goes down now because we anticipate future conditions, it's the facts, those future conditions as best as we can anticipate them that is reflected in that price. And that one price, whether it's going up or down, is the thing that we need to reflect those facts. Yeah, it just really cements the idea that you really need to think when you see a price about who are all of the other people uh, in the market and what are their abilities and their wants uh, as well as yours. And that, you know, those other participants in the market have every right that you do uh, to go for the oil. And that, that applies to all the other actors we mentioned. But it, it, it certainly applies to speculators. And one, one use that we've talked about before is that one very good use of buying oil is not just lubrication or to burn it for fuel, but is, is to use it as a store of value. If you're worried about government policy inflating the currency, which you're forced to use and you have no, no choice about, oil is something that's going, like gold, that's going to maintain uh, its value. And so it's, it's completely legitimate that people decide to buy gold uh, as an investment. It makes no more sense to say you're not allowed to buy oil as an investment than saying you're not allowed to buy uh, gold as an investment. I mean, it's something that it's, it's absolutely essential that people have the right to do. And if people think, oh gosh, I wish, I wish that oil were on the market, well then you should, you should fight the government policies that are driving people to need to save their money in the form of secure oil rather than what they perceive as unsecure green pieces of paper printed by Bernanke at will. Right. And uh, so let's just think about this. When in, in this case, when an oil speculator buys up a bunch of oil, not because he has any particular view about the supply and demand conditions in the future of oil, but just because he wants it as a store of value, what he's really doing is he's imbuing some kind of monetary character in that oil. Usually the thing we use when we just want to store value is money. And the problem nowadays, as Alex just mentioned, is that there's this potential threat of serious future inflation. Um, and there are good reasons to think kind of in the, you know, uh, over the next couple of years that this is potentially a real threat. Um, and given that, given that the government, because of its monetary policy and the entire monetary regime, has arranged the state of affairs where money does not have... Uh, in, in full, one of the essential properties that defines money being a store of value, when its function as a store of value is, is impeded um, and people just are forced into using other things that they really shouldn't have to use, like oil, in order to store value, um, given the, the monetary policy of the government, there's no way to be able to blame those people for, uh, for using oil as, in, in part, 
um, as the, the most essential economic good, which is money, which is the, the, the thing that facilitates indirect exchange and is the difference between an advanced industrial economy and a primitive tribal barter economy. So um, the debasement of money uh, does induce speculators to buy oil, which does increase the price of oil, um, but there, there's no way in which that that speculative function is actually a net bad for the economy given the monetary regime. And the real answer, as Alex suggests, is that if money is not serving its, its full potential role that it should be, then we should really look at changes to the monetary system and not blame oil speculators. So um, I have a couple of things I want to say to wrap up, but do you, are there any big topics you can think of that we haven't uh, covered? Uh, nothing jumping to the top of my head. In terms of, uh, just in terms of stuff that comes up uh, in the news, because the usual things you hear are just the price shouldn't go up. You know, it, it's bad that the price goes up. It's good that the price goes down, which, as we said, is, is, is a fallacy. The, the price is based on facts. It's not, you can't say it's good that it, it's good that it goes down based on the facts. It's good that it goes up based on the fact. What bad is if it gets manipulated or frozen or otherwise distorted um, in contradiction uh, to the facts. And then there's the whole, we talked about the issue of speculators, which is a, a set of, of buyers of oil, primarily, well, buyers and sellers of oil, whom people illegitimately do not want to deny rights to and whose productivity people don't uh, legitimately recognize. And then there's also the issue of, of the rights uh, and the legitimacy of the producers, namely the oil companies, who instead of recognizing that these are, these are the guys because we're willing to buy their product at this price, they're producing the best value and we should be appreciative and grateful. We are uh, condemnatory of them because it was, it isn't quite as, it's not as cheap as it used to be, but we're buying it because it's a really good deal. So again, they should be viewed with gratitude rather than condemning them and, and lionizing companies who can't even uh, come close to providing the value. So. Um, Eric, what do you want to say? What, like, if, if people could come away with one thing, what would you want them to come away with? Uh, it's really what you just kind of said, which is that a price, what a price is, it's a signal about some underlying facts in the world. Those facts usually pertaining to the scarcity of certain goods relative to other goods and how urgent those goods are for all of the people with all their uses for those goods. So the price reflects those facts. You can't just change the price and expect those facts to go away. When there's some unfortunate fact that occurs, you can't deal with that by changing, by shooting the messenger, by changing the price, by trying to, trying to um, you know, muscle over the needle on that, that temperature gauge in order to change the actual temperature in the boiler. It doesn't work and it only distorts your understanding of what's going on and your ability to plan in the future and coordinate your activities. All it does is it severs what's going on in your mind from what's going on in reality, and that's never good. And the thing I'd just say to wrap up, uh, to amplify some stuff I was saying before, is to just stress, so Eric stressing that prices uh, are based on facts, and I, I want to just stress that prices are based on rights, as in they're the consequence of individuals properly exercising their rights, you know, based on all of, of these facts. But it's important to think of it as the consequence of different individual people, each of whom has a right to pursue his life in the best way he can. So when you're thinking about the people who are in effect competing with you, and they are competing with you to bid for oil, those people have every bit as much of a right as you do to that. So if the price goes up because they are, because they want it too, or because new people are able to afford it who couldn't 
before, it makes no sense uh, to resent that. You should either buy, buy as much oil as you can find or buy as much uh, alternatives as you can find. And on the seller side, these are there are people who are choosing to make a living by producing the best fuel that they can. And the best people at that and people with rights are, are oil companies. And to view it as, well, they should somehow be producing more arbitrarily irrespective of the facts is, is to really not appreciate them, um, you know, all the individuals involved, not to recognize they have rights and treat them as somehow, you know, ultimately you're, you're a slave. So no one's life belongs to us. You know, our own lives belong to our, uh, ourselves, but that's it. So we, we should appreciate everyone else's right to, you know, buy the best thing they can with their money and appreciate the right of all the producers, certainly who create the best value they can for their, their time and their money, and appreciate that we have this amazing system that when the rights of everyone are, are respected, that we can make such, we can all exist in this incredibly coordinated, harmonious way where we can, all the goods we, we need are you know, available to us if we're willing to pay the right price, which is the price based on facts and the price based on rights. So with that, uh, we'll wrap up. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Epstein. He's Eric Dennis. This has been Power Surge.